This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Without you, this program would not have been possible. Tonight's special guest by popular demand is Sean David Morton. This episode is over three hours long. We discuss the past, present, and the future. Sean has been the number one guest for 18 years on Coast to Coast AM. In addition, you may have seen, heard, or read information about Sean being charged by the Securities and Exchange Commission. In this exclusive interview, Sean gives us his side of his story. You decide. Sean David Morton will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's three-hour interview with Sean David Morton and all our inventory of programs, become a member. You will receive instant access to all of them. Now remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. Just visit our website, veritasshow.com, click on the subscribe link, and take Veritas with you. 
you can now download the latest show via the iTunes link. That simple. And as promised, Season 2 of The Veritas Show is now available in our futuristic 8GB metal case USB drive. It includes all episodes for Season 2, including the bonus segments we did, all the bumper music, and bonus material, including some NASA footage that was supposed to be returned to them. I just received the shipment, so go ahead and place your order. Season 1 is still for sale. You can save on shipping when you purchase both seasons. Go to the Veritas store to purchase. And don't forget and get your MMS right from us. If you don't know what MMS is, go to our past shows link and find an interview with Jim Humble. Jim Humble versus the FDA. And you'll find out what MMS is. And if you're looking for health supplements, our new source offers the best pricing you can find. Just visit the link on our homepage. Look for your favorite product and compare. No matter how much you order, your shipping charge will be $5.95 for domestic orders. They also ship internationally. Well, many of you outside of the United States have written saying you were not able to watch my appearance on the History Channel's Brat Meltzer's Decoded, the 2012 episode. I believe someone posted it on YouTube. But the links are also at our forum. You can also watch my segment wherever you are around the world on our website. Go to the Veritas TV link and you will see the link right there. If you need to get in touch with me, just go to our website and click on the contact button and join me on Facebook. And now, get ready to spend a night with someone who can discuss a plethora of topics ranging from the paranormal, the economy, geopolitics, future predictions, you name it. Sean David Morton can discuss it. And he's coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. John Major Jenkins, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Sean David Morton first came to national attention with his investigation into Area 51 and his accurate predictions regarding the 1989 San Francisco earthquake. He later went on to successfully predict the 92 Landers, the 94 Northridge, and the 95 Kobe Japan earthquakes. In order to get his amazingly accurate predictions out to the world, Sean formed the Prophecy Research Institute in 1992. In the early 1980s, Sean and Dr. Elizabeth Targ pioneered many of the current techniques used in remote viewing today. Sean is a skilled and experienced remote viewer and has taught remote viewing in seminars all over the world. He has been a freelance writer, producer, and investigative reporter on television programs such as Sightings, Strange Universe, and Hard Copy. Sean is an independent feature film writer, director, and author. 
And directly from Southern California, I would like to introduce for the first time on Veritas, Sean David Morton. Hello, Sean, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi, Mel. Thank you very, very much. And let me let me start out with a compliment for you. I saw you on a television program, uh, Brad Metzer's Decoded, and uh, quite frankly, you were the best thing on the program. You were the you were one of the few people that actually was very clear and very concise and made sense. And uh, you were towards the end of the show, and it was worth watching the entire program just to see you there talking about talking about your research. And and uh, did they come up to Montreal? To sh- are you in Montreal? No, that looks like Montreal, but it's actually downtown LA. Oh, it is. Okay, all right. Well, they had you on a, a rooftop somewhere, and it looked. Uh, uh, anyway, you, uh, you yeah, it was it was very nice to see you on that program. And like I said, you made some sense of it. And and all I can tell you is that I have I, I, I never hear anything but fabulous things about the show, uh, and about the kind of things that you're doing. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And for years, I, uh, I've been listening to Coast to Coast AM, and uh, I used to listen to you all the time. So I'm glad that we have you on, Sean. A lot of our listeners have been asking me to interview you for a long time, and I'm glad we have you on. But there may be some people around the world who may not know who you are. Okay. To give them a better perspective, give us some background of yourself and what events shape the Sean you are today. Well, just just in brief, to not get too far into it, it was just one of the things where. Uh, I've I've I'd always been interested in the spiritual and the paranormal. Uh, my I know that the resume that you read there, the CV, is, has more to do with uh, the TV things that I've done and investigative things that I've done and the predictive things that I've done. But uh, uh, I we started out Catholics and then became Lutherans and then we became fundamentalist born again Christians and studying all the uh, uh, fundamentalist kind of Southern Baptist Bible stuff. And uh, then I became interested in, in astrology and, and various, uh, various predictive sciences. When I was 19 years old, I lived with a, a Swami that was from the Himalaya Mountains, Swami Sri Jaya. We lived together for a summer, studied yoga and, and palmistry and, and uh, Hindu mysticism. Uh, in 1986, I I'd actually, when I'd gotten out of, I, I graduated from the University of Southern California uh, with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree, a degree in political science, and I was a semester away from degrees in organic chemistry and astronomy. When I got out of USC, uh, I had sold a script to the television show Buck Rogers. The, the show was canceled before the script was ever produced. I became very good friends with Gene Roddenberry at the time, um, uh, and, and Gene had actually known my father, and I'd known my, my dad was the public relations director for a huge aerospace company called uh, called TRW, which was later bought by Northrop Grumman. So I grew up with uh, all the astronauts from the Apollo and the Gemini and Mercury programs. Uh, Gus Grissom was very much like a, a second father to me, and he was killed on Apollo huh. 1. Uh, my yes. little brother's godfather is Gene Cernan, who was the last man on the moon. But, I mean, I knew oh, all wow. the astronauts. Gordon Cooper used to sleep on our couch, and so they were always around the house. In fact, my father, with uh, Wally Schirra, actually started a, a, a club just for the astronauts in the aerospace industry, which became known as the very famous uh, International Turtle Club. And the uh, and Walter Cronkite was a member. So, I mean, we knew all these. I grew up with Hollywood celebrities and and doing uh, charity events and whatever else. And then uh, my, my parents were divorced, and then I moved up to Northern California, where my mother remarried a, a very wealthy uh, uh, Jewish businessman, my stepfather, Frank Salomon. And uh, once again, we were involved in, in behind the scenes with politics, and we became good friends with people like you know Eldridge Cleaver and and uh, uh, people that were in the uh, you know kind of political movement at the time uh, up there. My mother later became president of the National Health Federation for forty for thirty seven years or so, and my 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 stepdad financed most of the alternative cancer clinics 
actually in uh, in Mexico. So we pioneered alternative cancer treatments in the United States and worked to get everything from, you know, chiropractics to naturopaths, you know, all the things that you guys have in Canada that, uh, you know, everybody thinks is perfectly fine, but uh, uh, but are, uh, we're not accepted here. And, I, and my mother actually ran for vice president of the United States in 1984, and we started an alternate political party called the Populist Party at, at that time. Um, I made a great deal of money using my, uh, my predictive abilities to be able to predict the stock market at the time when I actually uh, got out of school. Uh, I'd actually asked my dad to set up a college fund for me of like $5,000 worth of gold coins when it was $32 an ounce, and then I basically paid my way through college because when I was going to school way back in the day, gold was about $850 an ounce. So that pretty much paid for my college education. Then I started investing in stocks, and I bought stock in companies like uh, King World Syndicate. I was one of the first people to predict, really, that Oprah Winfrey was going to be as, as, as huge, uh, famously, not physically, as she is. And uh, I saw a tape of her and said, this is the future of TV, and I bought a massive amount of stock in a company called King World Syndication uh, three months mm-hmm. before Oprah, Jeopardy, and Wheel of Fortune went on the air. And, of course, they've been on the air 25-plus years ever since. And I invested in nightclubs, and I was in a, I had a, I had restaurants and nightclubs and whatever else. And then I just got sick of the fast-paced lifestyle in Los Angeles and watched what it did to a lot of my friends. And uh, you know, never being a person that ever touched like drugs or alcohol or whatever else, and I watched everybody just be destroyed by it around me. And you know, I was the guy that was working, trying to keep everything up. So I basically just just bagged it all, and and rented out my house and packed a bag and a stick and and went to went to India. Went to Ireland, went to went to uh, uh, England, went to India, and then spent uh, the better part of eight months or so at a uh, at a monastery in Nepal uh, called Tang Bache. And um, I had a meeting with the Dalai Lama. I actually worked at the orphanage in Dharamsala uh, for a few months before the Dalai Lama then left for a big European tour, tour. Had a meeting with the Dalai Lama, and I said, I don't feel my journey's over. He said, go here to this monastery in Nepal. So I went. Uh, and they they let me stay at the monastery. They 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 claimed that I had some past life connection to the monastery, and now I, now I was back, and and they were expecting me, and and uh, I was a novitiate there, uh, and then came home. And after I came home, I I went back to working as a not only working as a disc jockey, but also trying to help people and counsel people. Eventually, got my PhD in therapeutic counseling, and um, uh, since then I've been working in the film and television industry. I've had a uh, yeah, pretty, did, done some movies. Had a had a national radio show called Strange Universe on Talk Radio Network when uh, when Art Bell was actually bought by Premier. I took over his old gig on his old network, and uh, so ever since then, I've I've been basically as I began to focus more on the planet, and as I began to dive deeper into my my practice and my meditative states, I, I started I started getting these strange feelings about things that were going to occur. And um, I was involved in the uh, way back in the 1970s, uh, and this was just one or two times. But when I was in high school, uh, we had some some advanced placement classes over at Stanford University, and we were involved in some of the original experiments that had to do with uh, what was later known as as remote viewing. And years later, I was I was dating and living with for a period of time uh, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Targ, who is Russell Targ's daughter. And Elizabeth and I, and Russell was one of the people that developed uh, RV, and we got involved kind of in a group that was that was originally called the Delphi Associates, which was a, a group of, of remote viewers that were being used to predict the price of silver at that time. And then years later, we got a group of people, and there was actually a whole Stanford study that was doc- done for Dr. James Spottiswood's Ph.D. 
on remote viewing and the predicting the outcome of random number generators, specifically roulette wheels. And we had about an 80% success rate with doing that. And uh, so I was there at the cutting edge of everything that was going on uh, as far as as far as EST, as far as uh, remote viewing, as far as my putting my spin on it and teaching uh, spiritual remote viewing classes. And then, and then when the earthquake predicting began, I came up with a technique using, using maps, basically, to uh, begin to pinpoint where certain uh, events and anomalies were going to occur. And my first big prediction was the, uh, the San Francisco earthquake in 1989, where I jumped up and down and tried to warn a lot of people. Actually, on October 1st, took a group of people to Mount Shasta, California, because I believe that you could use Mount Shasta as a vortex to control much of the much of the energy frequencies of Northern California, and uh, I'm sure that people just thought I was completely crazy when I was up there, and and there was a lot of counterintention that was involved. But the quake actually hit right where I said it was going to hit, within 60 miles of downtown San Francisco on October 17th, and I'd been all over, you know, yelling and screaming about it. And then when I started actually publishing my newsletter back in, I, I wrote a I wrote a manuscript called The Millennium Factor in, in September of 1992, and there was a whole body of predictions that came true, like Ross Perot reentering the presidential race, uh, you know, Bill Clinton winning by only 46% of the vote, you know, you know, all these political and physical predictions. But there were certain timelines that were shifting and changing, and when I started publishing my Delphi Associates newsletter in 93, it gave me a place to actually put in print my predictions to say, okay, this is what I said, this is where I was right, this is where I was wrong, this is where to try to be as, as transparent about it as possible, which, of course, you know, really began to piss off the critics because I could point and hit something with a stick and say, well, I didn't just say this and make up a bunch of stuff after the fact. I wrote it down. Here it is. Here's the specific prediction. And um, so as the newsletter evolved throughout the years, um, it became, a, a, you know, obviously a, a, source of, a source of concern for the critics because I could literally point to things and say, well, not only did I say it on the radio, and here's the recording of it, but you know, here's the you know, here's the prediction. So, as the newsletter went on, uh, there was a body of predictions that were going on here, and then I got involved with. Uh, uh, gosh, this is going on for a while. In 1990, I, I did a. I was involved with a, a documentary about UFO contactees, and um, it was one of the most extensive documentaries ever done uh, on the phenomenon. We put together about 600 hours of uh, uh, of uh, interviews with scientists, contactees, abductees, researchers, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, somebody had a dog barked at the UFO. We went out and talked to them. And we were really the first people to really go around the world and do this because we went to, we went up and down Italy. We went up and down Spain. Uh, we were investigating the, you know, the UMO in Italy with uh, uh, Dr. Antonio Rivera, the, uh, 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 the case of Fortunatos and Freda. We went to Billy Meyer's farm in Switzerland where we became good friends with him and good friends with his son Methuselah, and we went to and we went all over the place, Canada, wherever else. And at the same time, we interviewed a scientist named Bob Lazar, who said, "Well, you don't have to believe what I say. Go out to Area 51, go out to Highway 375, go stand by this marker on a Wednesday night, and you'll see ships test." So a year later, I took a friend of mine who worked for the LA Times, Shannon Sands, and um, you know, we went out there, and and uh, she was in a car with a photographer, and I was with my buddy in another car, and. We basically got buzzed by this UFO. I mean, literally, this thing practically stood on its edge about 50 feet from the car. And we got our faces. We chased after it. We got our faces all burned by it and whatever else. And so I started going out there every couple of weeks. And I found this hilltop that looked down on the base. And then you know, I took Geraldo out there. And I'd done some production on a, a couple of things for a show that he had called uh, called Now It Can Be Told, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then sightings came along. And we did. I was one of the producers on the uh, one of the pilot episodes for sightings. So that's kind of how a lot of this uh 
you know, interest in this game along. I'm not a, I'm not an abductee or a contactee or any kind of e, and I've gotten all this, all this, all this flack and all this misery and all this pain for, uh, you know, just investigating the phenomenon and just being out there and saying, you know, and meeting people like uh, uh, very influential contactees and people with with photographic evidence and film and proof and whatever else. So that's what got me into that. But I was always a, I was always a spiritual person with uh, certain intuitive abilities that worked very, very hard on the spiritual essence of that to be able to hone and focus what I do. And I, I, I was teaching classes for quite some time saying, look, I will show you how to do this. And if you guys want to go out there and stand on a rooftop with your hair on fire and pre- predict the future and have people throw rocks at you and, you know, smear and slander you on the Internet, you know, be my guest. Go ahead. So, um, so that's about it. That brings me up to now. We're, uh, we're now waiting for a production company to go public that I have a couple of projects with. I just finished off. Uh, I have a couple of books getting ready to be published. My first book was called Black Seraph, which is a, kind of a Vatican spy novel. The sequel to that is called Veil of the Antichrist, about a, a Muslim uprising in, in, uh, against, the, against the Christian world. And I just today finished a, a book uh, that's a memoir that was based on notes from a gentleman who just passed away called Sands of Time, and he was one of the top directors inside the secret government that had to do with, uh, in essence, planetary defense and, uh, and time travel. So, um, And last but not least, and I'll announce this for the first time on this program, part of this research and part of my viewing from the future, in other words, things that I've, and information that I've come back with from uh, doing meditations on future events and remote viewing, I now hold the provisional patent on the unified field theory. So specifically to build what's called a superluminal gravitational communications device. And so we're going to see what happens with that. I'd like to be able to start talking to some people at some major universities, but I actually have the mathematical equation in hand that um, that supposedly eluded Einstein for all those years, or that he, in fact, did finish the theory and um, and destroyed it, thinking that it was going to be too dangerous. He saw the amount of trouble that the equals mc squared equation caused with the development of the atomic bomb. Imagine right. a mathematical equation that allows you to access the entire space-time continuum. But I think it's I think we're ready now. I think we're moving into this fantastically in a lot of ways it's 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 terrifying to the people that are latched on to the old paradigm that you know the powers that were as i call them um because now everything is shifting and very few people know where it's going to go and it seems like it's going to basically just dissolve in, into chaos which is what i've been what i've been predicting for so many years and now it's you know now it's finally here and, and no one looks no one looks dumber than a than than somebody who deals in prophecies of the future. That when your prophecies come true, because now everybody says, okay, well that happened. Now you know now what's next, and uh, now we're just looking at kind of the uh, the center not holding, and the uh, uh, you know the falcon cannot hear the falconer, and everything sort of spinning out from the center. And at the same time, looking at some fantastically stupendous jumps and leaps in our evolution. Uh, that have been predicted, and for the first time, and I'm sure you, at, at a vortex of this information, Mel, are beginning to now realize that we have legitimate scientists and scientists, astronomers and, and scientists from around the world, uh, uh, geologists and whatever, who are now looking not only at the Mayan calendar and the predictions of the Mayan calendar, but also at the, also at the predictions of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Uh, so you have all of, these, all of these kind of ancient monuments that have acted as these these incredible, uh, these, these prophecies in stone, these clocks that have all been ticking backwards to this particular point in time and space, 
coming up later this year in 2011 and then in 2012. Um, you know, and then moving us beyond that. I mean, everybody just thinks that time will stop in 2012, but I should just write a book called 2013. I think that would be the best thing, because then to show people that, yeah, we get past the other side of this, but not without really substantial shifts and changes in consciousness. And it's kind of fun, because the people, for the people like us that are out there that are, 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 have been moving at this work for a long time, we've watched... We've watched other people wake up. We've watched them arise from the drunken Maya of the illusion that's kind of clouded their brain, and they turn to radio shows like Veritas and people like you that are getting the word out to find the truth. And, and, and Mel, have you, have you seen that, that people are kind of starting to catch up with you, and, they're, and more than ever they're, they're starting to really catch on to what's going on? I think there's an awakening process uh, taking place. I think uh, if I could put a time, Sean, it would be around, I would say, 2003, 2004, 2005, when a lot of people, for some reason, it was almost as if you snap your finger and they started waking up to, to our reality. But I like to take things on a more chronological order here. You're mentioning that you grew up with a lot of the astronauts, and that's very fascinating to our audience. I have a question, and I hope it's not offensive to those astronauts who may be your friend okay. and those that we, ha we have lost. Did we go to the moon? Yeah, yes, we did. And actually, it's, I don't know why, here's, here's, here's what's happening with that. The, not only did we go to the moon and, and back and do all the things that we said we did, the challenge that these people are having is that, and this is where it gets a little goofy, is that, again, with no bucks, there's no Buck Rogers. And so where they got confused is that Disney was working behind the scenes doing publicity things and photographs, and it got kind of, it got kind of mixed into everything else. It's sort of like, well, it's really nothing to compare it to. It's, it's, like, it's like a guy who takes real pictures of flying saucers. In the Billy Meyer case, for example, he went out and took some fake pictures of some, some fake flying saucers to show people, look, this is what a fake flying saucer looks like. And somehow those pictures then get mixed in with everything else. And they say, aha, well, we found these fake pictures of flying saucers, and now this proves he's a fake. So there was a lot of propaganda that was actually mixed into everything. Um, if we hadn't gone to the moon, wouldn't you think that the that that the information would be more um, would make more sense? In other words, there is so much anomalous information that comes from what was going on with the moon, as far as what's going on. That you would think that if the whole thing was contrived, uh, in, you know, in a film studio uh, in Manhattan Beach, California, which I think is really strange. What's what's really funny is that now on Apollo and Thirty Third, which is right across from Northrop Grumman, which is the area on Rosecrans and Aviation. Uh, right here in, in, in Manhattan Beach, that the actual hangars that I went in as a kid that actually had the lunar module and, the, and these rockets and whatever else are now film studios. They are now actually Marvel Studios and Raleigh Studios, and they are now filming Captain America and Thor and Iron Man and all this stuff in the actual hangar bays where you know we supposedly built all the stuff to go to the moon. So again, if... And, and I've debated with people about this and, you know, and everything else. Number one, if we had faked it, then the information would, be more, would, make, would make more sense from their end, would support more of their story. And the bottom line is that it does not. Number two, there are things about the moon that they do not want to tell you. There are certain things about the gravity, about the atmosphere, about what's up there, about the coloration, uh, about the backside of the moon, about certain things that that they just simply do not want to reveal. I do not know why. There, there are a lot of other things in this solar system, anomalies on Venus, and you know, we all know about Mars and whatever else, but they seem to have a very strict code 
that basically says that we're cut off from the rest of the universe. There is no interconnection. There is no hope. We can't we can't colonize other planets, which I think gives them control. Gives them an excuse for population control. And um, and, and you know, and again, the, you know, the population of the planet is is very close to about seven billion people now. Mm-hmm. I think it's just about seven billion. It was like. It was like uh, it just hit six 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 six, and they made a big deal about that. But um, again, in the Gene Roddenberry universe, since I knew Gene pretty well when I was younger, um, the Gene Roddenberry universe, people are good. We we naturally, uh, you know, what is human evolution based on? It's basically based on overcrowding and pollution. When when you have too many people and you stink the place up, the, you move on. You find the new world. You ex, you expand. You explore. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be colonizing the moon and, and be moving out towards Mars and whatever else. It, it, with the exception of the minute you start talking about that, you begin to introduce things that they have at Area 51 like anti-gravity. And once you introduce something like, for example, the unified field theory, which we're about to unleash on everybody, um, you get to the point where, uh, where again, you lose the choke points of energy, inf- energy, information, and food, which are the three things that they need to control. They control energy by possessing certain aspects of oil, specifically outside the country, so the federal government can have a, a more clear uh, control over it. Uh, they control information, obviously, and the one thing that got out of the box was the whole DARPA experiment of the Internet, which was never supposed to be released to the public, and somehow... You know, like, you know, Pandora opened it, and all these things jumped out, and so now they're having to deal with the uh, uh, the mass influx of information out there, whether or not anybody's paying attention. That's a you know, that's a whole. Other thing. You th- you think, uh, Sean, that it was not done on purpose, and that's how they can surveil and and, and keep a surveillance uh, society by tapping into whatever we do by having the internet. It's an after effect, in my opinion. It's an after effect. They they, they they're okay. ha- they're having to deal with the WikiLeaks, and they're having to deal with you know Mel and Veritas and. And you know the the mass amount of information that's that's out there now. That's the side effect. They are using it for the upside of of basically what they call these uh, uh, these new centers and uh, what are they called? Not scan centers. Um, what do they call my my brain? My brain just slipped a gear. Uh, they just did a big thing on it. Uh, focus focus centers, focus data centers. Uh, these, okay. these huge centers where they're they're gathering everything together and and uh, you know and 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 Google is basically developing the mind of God, which is. Which is pretty weird because Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO of Google, I grew up with. He was my next door neighbor. He literally lived in the house right down from us. And, and Meg Whitman, who just ran for governor of California, just just on the other side, when my mother died uh, five years ago, uh, you know, Mr. Schmidt actually bought her house to turn it into Google Mountain. So, um, what do they call not scan centers, but they're setting up these these huge centers to gather information on people and and uh, and yeah, it's it's a it's a terrifying. Orwellian situation of control, where they can get into computer and look at look at every aspect of your life. Um, so you know, yeah, six of one, half a dozen the other. But I think that the the upside of that is that now you have mass access to, mass access to information on a global scale, and um, you know, and things can go viral and things can get out there. Something other than you know, angry chipmunks or whatever. So, right. But uh, to answer your question on the moon, yes, we went to the moon. Yes, we did what we did on the moon, and. They are not telling you things about the moon. They are not telling you things about that the moon, for example, has more, it's not one-sixth the gravity of the Earth, it's like 60%, that there is, on the back side of the moon, that there is quite conceivably water and atmosphere. Uh, they are not telling you that the moon is a, well, and, and a lot of this information came out. If you paid attention to it, the information came out. And I, you know, I, I literally have been appearing on radio shows for 30 years talking about this stuff, that the moon is, in fact, a huge titanium yttrium sphere, 
which we discovered when Apollo 13 smacked into the lunar surface, and they measured the sound with seismographs coming off Apollos 11 and 12, um, that it's a titanium yttrium sphere that's covered about that's covered by about 27 miles worth of worth of uh, of, of dirt that's mostly iron iron oxide. And when you mine iron oxide, you you can crush it and get oxygen. Uh, we know that the lunar surface is immensely fertile because some of the samples that they took back here, they just sprinkled it on some plants, and the plants went crazy and grew up all around the laboratories. So it is a perfect spot for colonization, and it is quite possible, again, that, that, that there are gigantic glass structures up there, and this is a lot of the work of uh, people like my friends uh, Mike Barra and Richard Oakland. So there's a bunch sure. of stuff up there. The question becomes that... You know, now they're ch- and you know they're going to send a man back into space, but the man's going to be Chinese pretty soon because we don't really have, uh, we no longer have the industrial capability to even build the rockets to do it. But we shouldn't be even using rockets anyway. It should go all the way back to JFK having to decide whether or not the rocketry program or using the real stuff, which is you know electromagnetic engines or mercury drives or things that have to do with uh, you know the real space program. Which again, all, and all, which all the astronauts knew, and I think this is probably why Gus Grissom was probably killed. I mean, Gus used to talk about how the astronauts were basically that it was all a PR stunt and that they were spam in a can, and that all the real money was being spent at places like what they used to call the the, the Docktown Strip, which later became known as Groom Lake or Area 51, but that there was a, an alternative program where they were actively working on. Uh, German technology that they got from the war and what they call Vril and Hanabu crafts and, and that they yes. were in essence building saucers and they were going all kinds of places and that these were and that these programs were getting ten times the money that NASA was, but the whole thing was being used as a cover for a lot of other stuff they were doing. And he put a lemon on top of the module the day before he died. Yeah. Saying that there's no way this is gonna make it to the moon. Uh, but yeah. about the moon, once again, helium three, I've heard that uh, it can be mined there. The contradicting aspect that I see here, Sean, it's going to be over almost 50 years since we landed on the moon last. Right. You know, until the next time we go. However, we had the Japanese, we had the Chinese, uh, we have other other countries attempting to go back. Why the big gap between the early 70s and 2020-some? Can't tell you. Don't, Don't have an answer for it. Okay. Don't know. I, other, uh, other, other than, you know, chaos, economic collapse, whatever else. I mean, Apollo 18 was paid for and was ready to go, and they just, and they just stopped. I guess they, you know, you, you just remember the, the chaos we were going through in the late 70s. Vietnam. Yeah, Vietnam just ended. You know, Watergate was going on. People got, you know, the economy basically collapsed. Uh, you know, there's a lot of other things that were happening at the time, and, and it just was not, it, it just became, a, the funding for it just kind of fell out of the bottom. Now, again, the secret space program went along quite well, thank you very much. Uh, and again, okay. from the things that I've seen out at, out at, I mean, with my own eyes, out at somewhere like Area 51, which is, by the way, another reason why a lot of people seem to want to go after me, because I don't, I don't do secondhand information. I go out and I find out stuff myself. I talk to people, I climb up mountains, I sleep in the dirt, I try to do, you know, I try to do the research. And, um, I mean, we saw a shuttle in, in 19... 1993, we saw something that flew over our heads that was a gigantic wedge-shaped shovel, uh, shuttle that was about, our best estimate was this thing was about the size of an aircraft carrier. It was about 1,600 feet from tip to tail. And this thing was actually coming in over Southern California, reported on the news, where it was creating something called skyquakes. And my house in Hermosa Beach is actually right in the path of where these things were coming in and landing. 
So myself and my buddy, uh, my buddy John Hadley, uh, another tragic casualty of this because John was murdered uh, for knowing a lot of this stuff. And I seem to have a lot of friends that have been involved in this, like Danny Casalero and John Hadley and and uh, Jim Keith. You know, people that have woken up dead from knowing a little bit too much of this. Thank goodness I'm just a crazy psychic that's out there. So since I'm easy to discredit because I'm I'm a spiritual person that predicts events in the future, that makes me easier to go after. So you know they can they can discredit me a little easier uh, for all the hard investigative stuff that I've done. But again, this thing was about 1,600 feet from tip to tail, flew right over our heads, landed on the other side of Bald Mountain, and um, and one of the I think probably one of the greatest quote WikiLeaks stories that is out there. Uh, outside of this, you know, the stuff that this Assange guy is actually uh, is actually putting out. And there's a lot of stuff where, you know, there's a lot of people who think that he was actually working for Israeli intelligence, and you know, there's a lot of stuff behind that. But uh, 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 there was a guy by the name of um, Gary McKinnon, and I did, oh, yes. I did an article on on Gary's case, and here's a kid who basically is looking at 86 years in prison, British British subject, under the Patriot Act in the United States for basically using some Ukrainian uh, software to crack a number of defense databases, and he stumbled upon what they call the Nebraska Navy. And the Nebraska Navy is the code name for uh, a gigantic, uh, basically, space fleet that is that, that literally is just like Star Trek. I mean, it, it is literally like the Federation and Star Trek, where there are, are various classes of ships and craft, there are extraterrestrial officers, there are bases that operate on the moon and Mars. I mean, there's an entire infrastructure here uh, that is that set up that that is that's being hidden from us. So, in a lot of this book that I'm just finishing, literally just now doing the final clean edit on it now, Sands of Time, literally traces a man from the 1950s all the way through these various top secret programs and and the development of what of what he claims now is the is is a massive program to defend the planet. And that there is something very big and very nasty on its way here. That apparently the galactic alignments in 2012 will make it easier for whatever's heading this way uh, to allow them to get here more quickly using something called gravity drives. But you know who knows? Um, it is very interesting the development of all these things and jump technology and teleportation and rudimentary time travel. It's you know it's very interesting to kind of kind of take a look at. So once once you dive into this and you realize what's really really there. And McKinnon gave us a glimpse of it. I mean, that should have been the biggest story all around the world. But you know, obviously, the controlled press is—you know—they're not going to talk about that. They'll—they'll they'll show you this Assange guy and you know—you know, girls that he supposedly boofed when he was dating or you know whatever. So it's uh, but you know, that's 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 the realities that you've got. You've got a you've got in essence three levels of technology. You have a you have a a a corporate level which is about R and D, which is about three to five years ahead. You know, it's the next snappiest new iPhone. Um, you then have a military level of technology that seems to be approximately 10, maybe 15 years ahead of anything that we've ever heard of. If you figure that they were flying the SR-71 Blackbird that was doing Mach 3 back in 61, 62, 63, they admitted to it in 75 and then retired it in 78. That gives you an idea of the lag time of this technology. And then there above this, and this is the greatest mystery of all time, Mel, that is there a morning of the magician scenario? Where you have a mother corporation of some kind, and this mother corporation, this this basically sets up franchises that we would call Jack in the Box or Burger King or Pizza Hut or whatever, but they call Canada, the United States, Great Britain, Russia, and that these are in essence these franchises that are all that all look like they're competing with each other, 
when in fact that competition basically drives the, the slave machine, if you will, that then absorbs that power, energy, and information into the matrix of this mother corporation. And at the same time, have there been a cabal of scientists that fearing retribution from centralized authorities like the church, as an example, like Galileo or da Vinci or whatever, what if, you, what if they had never actually lost a scientific advancement in, say, 500 years? What if you started with da Vinci, with, oh, the airplane, the ornithopter, the, you know, the helicopter, the, uh, the submarine? And here's where it gets really interesting, is that you have futurists like Eric Blair, who was also known as George Orwell, like H.G. Wells, like Jules Verne, and all of these guys were Fabian socialists. They belonged to certain socialist societies that, that claimed to be sort of futurists. Today we would call them the Jason scholars, as an example. But uh, is this science fiction that they write basically a way for them to, for them to give glimpses of the future? I mean, here's Captain Nemo, who's an, right. an Arab in an atomic submarine, an exact description of an atomic submarine, running around the world in you know, the 1800s or so. You have First Men in the Moon, which then describes three men in a pod who take off from Florida, who go to the moon, who find out it's hollow, who find there's pockets of air. Uh, you know, there's a very, very, uh, there are some very accurate descriptions in, in that work that actually give us an idea, a little, a little bit more of an idea of what's going on. So, and even George Orwell, originally his novel 1984, he was going to call 1948, and he just switched the four and the eight because he thought it was too soon, and he wanted mm. something further out into the future. But again, he himself said that the book 1984, he said this book is not a warning, it is a blueprint. Mm-hmm. And in essence, that's what we have today. We have the blueprint for how you basically dumb down and, and control a society and civilization. And if you, if you read that book a couple of times, I mean, there's a reason why it's Hillary Clinton's favorite book, but you read it a couple of times and they've enacted it. I mean, they've, you know, terrorist events, they got Osama bin Laden and the, the faceless Arabs are basically the Emmanuel Goldstein and, and in essence they're, right. they're enacting a police state, you know, based on, oh, anybody can go crazy at any, at any minute, we've got to protect you from those people. And so look at what's going on and what you just mentioned with the internet and these uh, fusion centers, that's what they're called, fusion centers, these data fusion centers, uh, in essence gathering information on everybody out there. The, the question really is, what is the intention? And, and is it an angelic conflict where, I don't know, Satan takes over the world and, and becomes the dictator of the planet with the whole world at peace but at the end of a gun? Uh, or something angelic where, I don't know, Jesus comes back on his white horse at the end of time with, with all the angels and you know, a crown on his head, faithful and true on his thigh and whatever else, and, and you know, puts an end to it all, like so many religions say. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't. I, I'm not. I am not on the side of the fence that says everything that these guys are spending billions of dollars on uh, is to rape us, kill us, and destroy us. I, however, I'm not on the fence that I think that they have really our best interests involved. Outside of they understand that a burgeoning population gets more difficult to control, uh, and when they get to a, a, a point where machines can build the machines, and the population becomes kind of useless eaters, if you will. You know, I mean, just look. If you just look at the demographics, we don't take anything psychic or anything spiritual, whatever else. If you just look at the realities, by 2025, the population of China is going to expand, even at current levels where they're reducing population. You're going to need an entire new planet just to feed that population. So, but that's with current technology. That's what everybody always says. The challenge is, yes, we're doomed if you look at what's going on with the future. 
just with the exponential growth of mankind and pollution and whatever else, if you're talking about technology we're using today. You can't get to the moon in a boat. You need different technology. So you develop anti-gravity. You develop a box that has a wheel in it that can power anything, that you plug it into a plane or a car, or you take it out in the middle of the Sahara and it gives you a power source, as an example, or it runs a desalinization plant. You know, this the United States alone could very easily handle a population of a billion people, as an example, if you adjusted dietary rules and cut out a lot of meat and went to a more vegetarian diet like Japan, as an example. But again, that gets to the whole opinion of, on the one side, if you listen to the ecologists, who people are bad and they're evil, and on the other side, we should be developing technology that moves us up and out and off this, this world and this planet, out into the stars, but the challenge is, is that technology is evolving politically and economically rather than along the lines of actual science, which means that... But, yeah, go ahead. But you, you said it. You said it. You mentioned Gary McKinnon and what he found, yeah. and uh, there are a couple of names he mentioned. Uh, the USSS Roscoe Hillingcotter, the Curtis LeMay, right. which are vessels that are not in our waters. They're probably fine somewhere. So we obviously have technology out there. That's probably hundreds, if not thousands of years ahead of what we can probably fathom here in the mundane yeah, world. But, it's not, it, but it's, not, it's not hundreds of thousands of years ahead. It's maybe, it's maybe 10. It's maybe 20. Think about it. It's not that, it. It is not that far ahead with the stuff that we have. All you'd have to do, if you wanted to create the George Lucas Star Wars world, all you'd have to do basically is just find you know, a metal that floats on a magnetic field. Then everything True. else is propulsion drives after that. It's not, it is not that far ahead, I, I guarantee it. It's being kept secret because the minute you release it out into the world, and again, let me ask you... Make the other, you make the other technology obsolete, basically. Correct, because you're developing... Your, it's the horse over the internal combustion engine all over again. Yes. Creating a vertical technology that spreads an umbrella that basically destroys everything behind it. The, the really, right. we're all using Mel. We're using all the same stuff that, that Tesla and Einstein and these guys were working on at the turn of the century. The only thing that's different is that apparently something fell out of the sky in Roswell, New Mexico, and, you know, they handed things to different people like Shockley to develop the integrated circuit board and lasers and, you know, whatever else they managed to pull out, out of the, uh, the stuff, that, the couple of ships that actually crossed in, in Roswell and Corona. And, and again, then we figured out that, that we could actually blow these things out of the sky. And they started setting up traps in New Mexico with a huge microwave field. So they were kind of snaring a lot of these things, you know, and that's what Project Pounce was all about, was actually recovering this technology. So... Again, yeah, we're, we're messing with stuff, and we're goofing with things back and forth, and I'm sure there's certain factions of, of, of ETs that are working with the government. And, but again, the debate being here, if, if you re, if, again, if I said to you, all right, tomorrow, your rent's free, your food's free, you know, gas is free, there you go. What are you going to do? And they're afraid that instead of people having a utopian, you know, Socratic society where everybody contributes and, and everybody's a creditor, if you will, and takes responsibility, they have to deal with the slaves. They have to deal with the debtors. They have to deal with the people that are going to sit around in their underpants and, you know, watch MTV and, and uh, you know, dance around to Madonna all day or whatever. There's, there's got to be an impetus to basically get the hamsters to, to drive the Kias and spin in the wheel. So what do you do? I mean, if, if you're king of the world for a day... What do you do? What do you fix? And who do you hurt if you fix? If you help one group of people, do you hurt another group of people? Is it? Is it? I mean, I can't even imagine what a what a Messiah who would come today would actually look at. The good news is, in all this, because we're getting, I think we're getting bogged down in the trivia. The good news is, 
is that if you understand that the planet is purposeful, that the Mayan motto for their civilization was all is one, life has spirit, God is love, that if everything's connected together, um, that if, uh, I'm sorry, life has purpose as well. So if everything is connected together and all is one and everything's connected, and if life has purpose, then we're here for a reason. I mean, you know, you woke up today, so your mission in life isn't dead. And that if God is, in fact, love, then that means that the prima mobile of the universe is everything being connected together to that, to that love and affection. And if you think of Earth as a, as, a, as a huge brain, and you think of us as the people within that brain, the cells within that brain, then the brain itself is beginning to evolve. And, and, and what has dumbed us down for the last 12,500 years has been a veil that has been cast across the right-hand side of the brain, which is, in essence, because if you have the two, you have a bicameral fissure, you have two brains in our head. You have the left-hand side of the brain controls the right-hand side of the body. The left-hand side of the brain deals in, 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 in um, can I eat it? Can I fight it? Can I run away from it? Or can I kill its boyfriend and have sex with it? That's kind of like the limbic system of the brain. But it deals in, in all it's good is for measuring things. Two plus two is four. Uh, there's so much distance between here and there. And it's the judgmental measuring part of the brain, the logical Western mind. The eastern mind on the right-hand side of the brain, what we call the... And by the way, the, the left-hand side of the brain deals in linear time. That A, B, C, D, E, F, G, everything is in a progression of time, which is not really how we, how we move through time, but it's how, it, but it's how we, it makes sense to us. Whereas the quantum side of the brain is designed for use in outer space. There is no up, down, right, left, or center. There is no past or future. It, it exists in quantum time that we can access using techniques like remote viewing or you know, any sort of psychic or intuitive meditation or whatever. There's, it, there's actually, and this is very interesting, because this came out in the last two weeks, and I think you should, do a, you should do a piece on this. They actually, in scanning the brain itself, had people think about a walk that they took on the beach like two days ago, and one part of the brain lights up. Then they tell the person, all right, we want you to think of a walk on the beach that's going to happen tomorrow. And they think in the future, and another part of the brain lights up, and they call it, this is great, they call it chronostesia. And chronostesia is the brain's ability to think, plot, and or plan, and directly experience experiences in the future that it hasn't really experienced yet. And chronostesia is how they're now starting to explain how when a big, horrible event is about to occur, like 9-11, like JFK assassination, like whatever else, that... That, the, that you get tense, you get weird, because you can actually begin to feel, it's like somebody drops a big rock in the river, and you're in a boat going down the time stream. Suddenly, everything starts to get kind of bumpy, and you get these rapids, because you know there's a rock or a waterfall in front of you. And so chronesthesia begins to create a mass ripple of consciousness, which then begins to show up on the Internet and in their communications, and which is how they you know, do the web bot thing, and you know, all other stuff, which is what I saw you talk about on the show, which I thought was very fascinating. So, if we and, and the great part about this brain is it thinks in symbols, archetypes, color, art, dance, fluidic movement, and so it is the it is the crushed female side of the brain that has been suppressed. Well, I can tell you, and this is what's very interesting. There's two versions of the Mayan calendar that are kind of out there. There's a great debate out there, and I'm going to get you in touch with one of these gentlemen to have him on your show. But I'm a big fan of a gentleman by the name of Dr. Carl Johan Kalman, and we've put together a cruise to Mexico. That if anybody wants to come on the cruise, it's it's uh, uh, the lady that's putting it on is uh, 
Dr. Susan Shumsky, and it's uh, uh, divinetravels.com is her website. But we've got Dr. Carl Johan Kalman, who wrote The Purposeful Universe and The Mind Calendar and The Transformation of Consciousness. We've got Richard Hoagland. We've got Jim Mars. We've got Patricia Coder Robles. We've got Michelle White Dove. I mean, it's literally the luminaries. Everybody who's anybody out there is going to be on this cruise. We've got about 200 people now, and we're expecting to have probably about 350 by the time we're done with it. And Dr. Kalman, in his books, is interesting. He believes that the Mayan calendar ends on October 28th of 2011, that that is when all the back tons, all the various tons in the calendar, then line up as then. Now, John Major Jenkins obviously has the popular belief that it's December 21st of 2012. That is when the sun directly aligns with the ball court in Chichen Itza, and also when the sun hits the top of Palenque, and all these various things, all these interesting things happen. So two theories. One theory, I think, is that the activation that occurs on October 28th of 2011, which just so happens to be Hillary Clinton's birthday, coincidence? Yeah, it's probably coincidence. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, it's, I think it's the sperm hitting the egg. I think it's the activation, that there's something massive and major that occurs as, as a sliver in your mind that begins, to, begins the genesis of the active wave of the mind of the hundredth monkey that suddenly starts washing the potato. And, and instead of getting hit with a stick, it begins to evolve and grow. And so the symbology then becomes that on December 21st of 2012, this gestation period of 13 months, mind you, has occurred from October of 2011, so that now when the sun aligns with this ring, this kind of, uh, uh, this kind of vertical ring in, in the Yucatan, it looks like the crowning head of a child, of a baby, literally coming down the birth canal, because now what is, what is the sun aligning with? It is literally aligning with the, with the cosmic vagina, if you will, of a mile-wide black hole of a galactic pulse at the center of the universe. Now, Kalaman believes, and I agree with this, that, between, uh, that, that on March 9th of this year, of 2011, let me give you some kind of interesting dates here. We start our cruise on March 5th. On March 9th, as part of the cruise, we're going to be meeting with a whole group of Olmec elders. And it's interesting because Olmec, who were the precursors to the Mayans, the actual word means rope of time. Um, we're meeting with all of them to do like a ceremony because he believes that the final 236-day activation of 16.4 billion years of human evolution actually takes place at this particular time. And the fascinating part about this is the Mayans, not only do they know where they were in the galaxy, what the Earth was going through, where it was going to be as, as a projection, not only do they know about the time frames and whatever else, but they also knew that the galaxy was 16.4 billion years old. Now modern science says it's something like, I think it's 15 billion, but the further, every time they get a better telescope, they, they, it says, oh no, it's older than that, so I'll go with the Mayans. 16.4 billion years, divided up into weeks of six nights and seven days. Each week gets shorter as you go up the top of it, and it begins with it begins with atoms, and then molecules. Those molecules organize into individuals. Those individuals then organize into into families. The families then organize into tribes. The tribes organize into communities. The communities organize into into, uh, into nations. The nations organize into a planet. Uh, so, so you have an awareness of where you are in the world and the planet. Then the planet begins to understand where it is in the galaxy, which is where we're at now. This is the galactic week starting January of 1999, going on through 2011 and, two, and, and, and 2012, uh, is, is, this, is what they call the galactic week. So now every process of evolution 
going up that 16.4 billion year aspect is now being hyperactivated and and sped up. I mean, it's it's everybody's getting a big jolt of coffee, and as this happens now, the actual temple on the top of Palenque, on the top of Tikal, on the top of, of, of Chichen Itza, the temple itself, where all the mysteries happen, is now this final, what they call the universal underworld, is now this final pulse of the reconciliation of this six-day and, and, and seven-night pulse or period, if you will, being now divided up, by dividing up into years, that then occurs theoretically between 2011 and 2012. Kalaman uh, uh, thinks it's 2011, but again, I think that that is the, the activation point. But the universal underworld basically says that some kind of pulse or energy between now and let's just call it the end date of 2012, it basically with the sun in front of it is amplified like a lens that shatters the wall that divides us between the right and the left-hand sides of the brain, takes the veil off the right-hand side of the brain, and suddenly begins to give us access to quantum time, to intuition and the chronosthesia of being able to see the future and empathy and and all the things that go along with being at one literally with the with the universe and the cosmos and if you have people that are at one it becomes very difficult for people to go out and and lie cheat steal and, and kill other people which is the you know which which has been the challenge going all the way through this now it also says that once again, and this is interesting because this is where the Great Pyramid gets in there. Because if you understand the Great Pyramid, and I spent, you know, I actually when I was a kid, I went to school in Egypt, and my family spent. Um, uh, we were the first Americans actually led into Egypt to trade back in seventy four, seventy five, and my stepdad had a Lebanese business partner, and that's a whole other thing. But I got to study the pyramids and climb up them and run up and down them and talk to, you know, imams and rabbis and all these people that were the you know the real mystics on the pyramids, and I knew from that time when I was about 16 years old in 74, 75, basically the pattern of what the, 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 the big picture of how things were going to go down. And it predicted, and I've been talking about this for forever, that in late 2004 to 2005 that we would begin to experience a series of water-based catastrophes like Katrina, like Rita, like the, uh, like the, uh, the Sumatran tsunami, like all of these kind of water-based catastrophes. And by the way, all the floods that are happening in Australia and all around the world the very last panel on the Mayan calendar shows the villain, Seven Macaw, standing on the, the shoulders of this, of this black guy that then has this sky crocodile that is, that is vomiting out these gouts of, of water that seems to be flecked with these black spots. And I was telling people, I said, you know, it's kind of funny because that looks like oil to me. Do you think that something might happen with oil that might be interesting to, you know, kind of mess up the water supply and screw up what's going on? And, I'm sorry. Uh, for some reason, I can't hear you now. Your your Skype connection is you sound like a you sound like an evil alien Cylon. Uh, okay. <laughs> so where were we? What you were talking about 2012. You're talking about the the water uh, catastrophes that we're experiencing, and now what we have in Victoria and, and Brisbane and Australia. And you talk about the seven macaw. But please, for for the listeners who who may not be familiar with all this Maya uh, predictions and the prophecies, what exactly is a seven macaw? And you talk about having the seven macaw on top of a black man. Put this in perspective for us. That it's just, it just represents the, the negative or evil, or evil influences. It, it kind of really sort of represents the lower mind. It just represents, uh, uh, you know, there's, there, there are, you know, it's like Loki or Satan or whatever. It's just he's the, uh, 
he's kind of the dark prince of a lot of the Mayan stuff that that is the enemy of of Quetzalcoatl, who is the star or light bringer. And oddly enough, Quetzalcoatl yes. is directly related to uh, is directly to, related to the Pleiades as well, because there there's a serpent called the Quetzalcoatl serpent in Central America that actually has a marking on its tail that is seven spots in the shape of a of a question mark, which is literally looks like the uh, uh, looks like the tail of the um, uh, looks like the tail of the snake, but looks like the constellation in the sky. The the most mm. overwhelming thing that I think is also missed about this is that when Quetzalcoatl, the bearded white man, who by the way the Aztecs misinterpreting Mayan prophecy. Uh, were the ones that said, oh, here's Cortez, oh, he's the bearded white man that came back. And, of course, the Mormons have a whole thing about, oh, yeah, it's really Jesus, and, you know, once Jesus was crucified, he spent all this time in Central America, because, you know, when you, get up, when you get beat up by the Romans, you know, you need a vacation in Cabo, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the whole Book of Mormon is sort of like, you know, the, 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 the way the West was won, starring Jesus of Nazareth, you know, John Wayne is Jesus, and it's like, I'm going to kick you money changers out of that temple right now. So, uh, uh, so what the point that's missed is that the energy of Quetzalcoatl that returns is the female version of Quetzalcoatl. It is the feminine um, soulmate, the wife, if you will, of Quetzalcoatl. So, and that's what represents the female part of the brain, the, the feminine side of the, you know, the right-hand side of the brain, that that reintegration is what occurs. It's also interesting, too, because Kalaman, in his calendar of the Galactic Week, talked about a global photonic planetary pulse that would go all around the world that would join uh, East and West in August of 2008. Well, uh, holy cow, what happens? The Olympics occur in mm-hmm. Beijing right on time. Four and a half billion people, more people than watch anything ever, uh, watch the Olympics. And again, this is this pulse that is bringing the East and, Eastern, East and West cultures together, forcibly, I might add, and at the same time, the East and West actual sections of the brain. Now, where does it all go? Where it goes is, is it let's take, if you take the bigger picture of the sacred geometry of the Great Pyramid of Giza, again, another clock, another, another proof that whoever was back there, you know, us, if you will, reincarnating down through time, apparently either know that we would get stupider as we, as we went through time, or that the Dark Lords would try to, because the whole thing has been, Everything from the Book of Enoch on, and the fall of the sons of uh, the, the fall of the sons of God, or the, the dark Elohim, or whatever you want to call it, at that time has been basically a war between the dark lords, who are these ravening giants who are who are incarnating on the planet as the the Bushes and the Obamas and the Clintons and the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and whatever else, versus the evolution of the children of light, who are trying to move up the ladder to ascension. And again, remember, people, that ascension just means everybody makes this big thing about ascension. You know, you don't have to be Jesus with his foot on the Mount of Olives, you know, going into a cloud and disappearing in front of in front of Elijah and Moses and whatever else. It means it means to view things or to move to a higher place. And so, as we ascend or move to that higher place right now, the point of this ascension is is that is that all everything's coming together where there is going to be a collapse of civilization. The Mayan calendar talked about political and economic collapses in, uh, in 2005 to 2006. I was predicting it with the stuff that I was doing with the stock market at the time. Um, the Great Pyramid of Giza says that these will be water-based catastrophes because the pit, which is the, uh, which is the siege perilous for the initiate, which is 151 feet below the plane level of the pyramid, when the initiate moved into that space, it was blocked off and it was flooded 
from underneath the pit, and the initiate then had to survive the water torture aspect of it, if you will. And it was, of course, then drained, and then he continued on his mission. So what begins to happen? Right on key, you know, the, and I've been talking about this for forever, right in the fall of 2004 through 2005, you have a series of water-based catastrophes. It also says that there are very specifically three paths of evolution, that you have the path of the, the people that, that just don't want to get it, that are going to be destroyed, that are going to go down to the pit, and it's why they sort of came here in the first place. You then have the middle path people, who are people that just want to play it safe. They're into the material, they want their watches or their BMWs or whatever it is, and they just, you know, they're the mower's better crowd. I just need my stuff. And then there's the crowd that are actively ascending, that are moving towards the symbol of the pyramid, which is the empty sarcophagus, which is very, you could say it's very Christ-like, but in, in their terms it's very, it's very Osirian, because it was actually the, it was the myth of, of Isis and Osiris, his, his resurrection, if you will. So where does it all go? It goes, it goes to political and economic collapse, collapse and chaos, a series of, of, of massive floods, if you will, uh, water challenges that begin to you know wipe out countries like like Australia. Um, uh, you know all we would need is one big earthquake. And technically, if you looked at the movie, uh, did you ever see the movie 2012? Yes, I did. I mean, I, now I begin to realize that that if I just have a Winnebago and a limousine, I'll survive it and I'll be okay. That's what I learned <laughs> from that movie. That I can outrun the apocalypse. So I just have a Winnebago and a limousine and um, a small plane. Yeah, and a small plane. Yeah, exactly, and a small plane. So it does say that it's interesting from, from the pyramid perspective. The pyramid, basically through the time coding of the pyramid, says that beginning in 2005, that we would begin to see humanity kind of, uh, kind of do a slow, gradual fall. That it kind of looked like a, a guy in a Charlie Chaplin or Harold Lloyd movie who's fallen off a cliff, who sort of hits every, you know, ooh, 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 every nook and cranny on the way down. But that society and civilization begins to really collapse and really unravel. But the low point for this entire 7,000-year phase of history that we're going through occurs sometime between about 2015 and approximately 2025. And that human civilization as we know it will not even be reestablished in certain parts of the world until about 2025. And the hopeful aspect, if you just switch gears here again, is that at some point in 2034, which from my remote viewing of the future is when all the calendars start over, by the way, uh, there's some great sign in the sky. What I've seen from my journeys to 100 years from now is that after, that in essence, that you have 7 billion people on the planet that are predicted to reincarnate because everybody who has ever lived must be here now for the great exodus, for the final judgment, if you will. Beginning in 2000, the pyramid points to a 40-year exodus period. In this 40-year exodus period, these seven-plus billion people or so are simply going to find a way to check out rather dramatically, whether or not it's through disease or disaster or whatever. But you have to take the perspective that no one ever really dies, that everybody is unbreakable, unkillable, adamantine shards of the survival of universal life. And if you take that aspect of it, and you understand that the planet is then cleansed in a way so that those souls or spirits can then return in a more ascended form, if you will, but the entire point of the Great Pyramid is the coming of a, a new Messiah. And it predicts Moses, it predicts Buddha, it predicts Jesus of Nazareth, and it predicts that in the future, sometime around 2034 and about 2040 or so, that there is another Messianic figure that is going to arrive, 
that will represent the pinnacle, the capstone, if you will, the completion of the pyramid. Jesus said, I'm the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This chief, chief cornerstone arrives, and what I see, and this is just my personal opinion from my views of the future and my going there, is you have a planet in about 2050 or so that is totally at peace, that is ecologically aware, that is using all of this amazing super technology that's now free to everybody. Uh, you have teleportation, you have space travel, but you also have a woman who is known as the Emanuela in this future, in this future time who seems to be this kind of all-wise, sort of all-knowing theological queen uh, ruling, oddly enough, out of England and actually born in England because she's actually born out of the energy of Stonehenge that has something to do with the, the bloodline that's currently there with Prince Harry and, and Prince William and the bloodline of Lady Diana and whatever else, but mm-hmm. it's, it's this woman who kind of rules in the future. The Mayan aspect, let me give you 2012. 2012 comes up, and it's the end of this series of tons of calendars that begin in 3115 B.C. The scary part about that is, is that now Harvard and Princeton geologists are telling us, and this has been all over the TV, I mean, I watched, I watched two or three specials on it on the Discovery Channel. These guys went down to Peru, to the, to the glaciers in Peru. And in the same period of time that these mass glaciers form in South America is the same period of time where they pulled out the Austrian Iceman. And I, I'm not talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Batman movie, everyone's right, killed. Right, right. And I'm going to miss him as governor, man, because I do a great Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. And it's like, oh, what do you mean? But, but, by the way, Shaw, we have to take our one and only break, so if okay. you can hold it right there. No but before we take a break, I want you to, to address something really quickly, really briefly, because we have a lot of stuff to discuss after we come back from the break. Okay. Uh, you know, you cover so many areas, and I want to continue this part about 2012 and, and the coming of the divine feminine. Okay. But as I discussed with you offline, I wanted to briefly discuss what happened with you in the past couple of years. A lot of your friends have disappeared, have been killed, have been framed, and you perhaps have been one of them. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of talk out there on the Internet, and I don't think you have been given the opportunity to state your side. And I want to give you the opportunity to say so right now so we can come back and, and, and be clear. Okay. There are lawsuits involved, and the SEC has charged you as a result from Forex trading, although the SEC has no jurisdiction over currency trading. But why don't you go ahead and uh, share with us your side of the story? Well, okay, let me tell you what's going on. And again, I've tried to get it out there. I mean, I've, I've been denied. I invited the world press when I was in New York saying, look, I'm not hiding. I called the New York Times and all these people saying, come on down. I will talk to you. I tried to get on Coast to Coast AM and was denied my ability to talk about you know my side of the story, what's going on, and I will tell you, it's it's a very easy story. It's easy and it's complicated. So let me give you the easy version of the story. Um, okay. In two thousand six, two thousand five, two thousand five, two thousand five, I was approached by a guy in Canada named Daryl Weber, and Daryl Weber claimed that he was a a currency trader, and that he had been a fan for a number of years and had been a admirer of my my stock market predictions and whatever else. And by the way. Let me point out to people, and this is what a lot of people don't understand. Since the 1980s or so, when I played the stock market and made a lot of money, all of these stock market predictions that I've made, I have never profited from. I have given stock market predictions to people that have made literally millions of dollars of people out there. I have told people about gold, about silver, about exact prices for gold or silver, about when to buy, when to sell. 
I was when silver was three dollars an ounce years ago. I was telling him, "Look, buy it now. It's going to go to thirty. It's going to do whatever." I've never profited from that, and the reason being is that it would have been unethical for me to give you a stock on the radio that I owned and then possibly pump up that stock. You know, I mean, if I say, "Oh, go out and buy nuclear solutions today," or, or you know, something, and then I own the stock, how ethical is it of me to say on the radio that I think this is going to be good and then make money from that? So I've never made money from my stock market predictions. So what happened was that Mr. Weber, who was the, the, the be-all and the end-all of this, set this up and said, uh, we would like to do a currency trading. Can we do currency trading using your predictions? And I said, yes, I think I came up with a, came up with a theory of a way to actually predict the market. So I believe it was in January, February, March, April. It was somewhere around March of, uh, it was like February of 2006 that we started doing paper trading, basically uh, trying to predict good currency. And we did fabulously well. We had something like a 500% profit, once again, on paper, without risking any money. So we, got, we put some of our money in, and we got a small group of friends, about 30 people or so, that started doing this trading, which was perfectly fine. We had a couple of companies set up. We had LLCs, and we were doing currency trading, which, by the way, not regulated by the Security and Exchange Commission because it's currency trading. So we started doing currency trading. Then I made the mistake of opening my big mouth and mentioning on Coast to Coast AM sometime in July that this was something I was doing. I did not advertise. I did not put it on the web. I did not put it in my newsletter. I did not send email blasts to people. I simply said, and you can quote this and you can pull this off wherever it was, that because I had put together this, this financial group with my friends, that we were doing currency trading, that we'd done very well with it, I noticed that somebody was manipulating the global currency markets, and somebody had. Somebody had actually suppressed across the board a bunch of currencies, waited for them to kind of drag the bottom, and then made, literally they looted about $4 trillion out of the market sometime in about 2006 or so, but using manipulations of the market. So just my mention of my riding a horse, if you will, is not my trying to sell people a horse. I had people literally knocking my treehouse down, contacting me saying, we want in. And I, being the good guy that I was, said, okay, well, all right, I know you, and you subscribe to the newsletter, and that's all cool. So we got a group of people um, involved in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in, in foreign exchange trading, in essence, through a series of LLCs. And people put money in the LLCs, and we transferred the funds to FXCM where they were supposed to go. Um, there were about 163 people, I think, finally in this group. Of that, you had only uh, you had 73 people that made money, that got paid, that received checks, that, that got out. And this is just off the top of my head here. Um, then what happened was is that everything that I had said about the markets came true. I predicted that the euro would go to a dollar 65. The euro went to actually a dollar 63. So I missed it by two cents. I talked about how the U.S. dollar was about to collapse. That began to happen. I talked about how the Japanese yen would collapse. That also happened. So what occurred is, is that on Thanksgiving Day, when I had warned this trader everything that was going to happen in advance, and I was on the radio talking about it, and I put it in my newsletter. So suddenly, the trader decides to do the exact opposite of everything that I told him to do, which makes me look like a complete idiot, where it's like people say, but you said this and it happened, and how come we didn't make money? Because Mr. Weber decided that because he was in control of the actual trading. I never touched the money. I didn't want to touch the money. I didn't want to know about it because that would have interfered with my process. But what Mr. Weber did is that, number one, he did the opposite of what I told him to do, then claiming that, well, what you were saying at the time 
was so radical and so outrageous, even though it happened, that it would have been fiscally irresponsible of me as the trader to actually take your direction and your advice. And I said, but people got into this group because they agreed with my projections of what was going on. So not only did he bet the opposite of everything I told him to do, but on Thanksgiving Day, when everything was closed, he went on vacation for four or five days. And it was known as the Black Thanksgiving when the dollar went to, uh, went to a, a, a record low, the Japanese yen went to a 46-year 46 46 low, the euro began to skyrocket, and my buddy, Darrell Weber, had bet with the dollar against the euro, apparently with the Japanese yen, and, done, and destroyed us. And if you understand how currency trading works, if you don't pay attention for a second, I mean, you need ice water in your veins and nerves of steel, because you can lose all your money in a, in a, in a heartbeat. Everybody that got into the program, I told them that, look, this is an experiment. This is high risk. This is a casino investment that if you're not ready to put your money at this, we said this in every piece of paper we said to people, we said past performance is no guarantee of future gains, that, uh, uh, and that if you're not ready to put your money on black in the casino, lose it all and walk out. Don't do this. People called me on the phone and said, oh, I'm going to give you, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I said, God's sakes, no. Take a third of your money and put it in blue-chip stocks. Take another third of your money and put it in gold, specifically silver. And if you have some mad money left over, like maybe 20 bucks, you know, 20% or so, you can put it in the trading program. So Mr. Weber lost all the money. So on December 7th of 2006, we, we took – and again, we had had up to that point profits of about 250%. So we had a trading nut, if you will – of about $2 million, which we had turned in and profited into about $6 million or so, which then Mr. Weber then turned around and lost most of. So on December 7th of 2006, I sent a letter to everybody that said, look, this is what happened. I, you know, I'm trying to be as transparent as this, uh, with this as possible. What do you guys want me to do? We can keep trading if you like. And again, the deal was any profits that we made, there was going to be a 50-50 split. Daryl Weber would get 30% of the 50-50, and we would get 20%, me personally, for my efforts. So, but this was only off money that we had made. So we offered to work for people for free for a year to try to actually make up what was going on you know, with what was happening. You know, and meanwhile, the only thing that we were taking out, well, you know, for us was basically expenses and rent and whatever else to basically just kind of pay the bills around here to keep everything going on. So this continued through um, October, November of uh, of 2007, and then suddenly, from out of the blue, 2007 or so, uh, our FX company gets a a quote subpoena, and they're not even really subpoenas from the Security and Exchange Commission because a couple of people who had who had lost money. Um, apparently complained. And a lot of this was on Daryl Weber's shoulders because Mr. Weber was not communicating with people, but Mr. Weber did all the accounting, and he did, he did everything. He did the accounting, he did the communication, he was doing the trading, and apparently was uh, you know, not really even taking my advice, and, which is what was originally agreed to. So the Security Exchange Commission then decides they're going to subpoena FXCM. FXCM turns around to us and says, well, we don't feel like carrying your accounts anymore, so we're going to shut down your position. And so the money that was left of about, I think, about $200,000 or so, um, by the time they shut us down and closed the positions out that Weber had put in because we were trying to fix things and hoping and because the positions he put in, we were trying to make the market, we were hoping the market would go the other way because there was no way to just cash everything out. Um, they, there was like twenty grand left because the FXCM destroyed whatever, whatever was left. So now suddenly we're dealing with our buddies at the SEC. 
Well, the Security Exchange Commission does not regulate foreign exchange. That's pretty clear. So nothing we were doing is stuff that was regulated by them. So they go through this whole investigation where I'm sitting here going, tell me what your jurisdiction is here. Nothing happened in New York where you guys are from. What the hell is going on? And I sued the Security and Exchange Commission, sued them a year ago. And I sued them for restraint of trade, for slander, for libel, um, and at the same time pointing out that there was a George Bush executive order that basically stated that federal prosecutors could break the law, that the Constitution basically wasn't in force anymore. And I sued the snot of these guys, also bringing up the fact, which they have not denied, that the lead investigator for the SEC, Mr. Bennett Ellenbogen, apparently was involved in some kind of homosexual relationship with a guy who was in the process of suing me. So there was inside stuff that was going on with this. So there were three lawsuits that actually resulted from this. Two of the lawsuits, and this is where Daryl Weber comes in again. Weber says, oh, well, I've got another deal going on, and I will pay them some money, and I will, be, I will take responsibility because I caused all the losses, and et cetera, et cetera. So in two lawsuits, there were settlement agreements, signed, sealed, and delivered by two of these people that said that, that I had acted perfectly up, upstanding, that they had put money in the LLC. We had all the receipts. And at the end of closing these things down, we sent everybody in the trading group CD-ROMs that showed where every dime of this money went, and we gave them 1099s, we gave them tax forms. I mean, this is a gigantic amount of work for us to close this down. So what then occurs is, is that there's, there's two lawsuits here. The third lawsuit was a complete nut job by the name of Carol Dunn. And Carol Dunn is all, was all over the news and was all over the TV and was all over the Internet about, oh, I'm a poor old woman and he stole my money. Well, Miss Dunn, her story goes that she put in $20,000 into the account and the accounts literally melted down 30 days later. And she was informed, along with everybody else, of the losses. And she was more than happy to let us work for free for about six months or so. And when we couldn't make up the money with what we had, Dunn wrote me a threatening letter saying that basically uh, she didn't care whose throat I cut, but that she specifically wanted all her money back. And if she didn't get all her money back, and literally she wanted me to steal money from other people to give it to her, and if she didn't get all her money back, that she was going to lie and cheat and steal and go to the SEC and cause all kinds of problems and et cetera, et cetera, which, of course, she did. Well, that case, sir has just been dismissed. And this is after, I might add, three judges who kicked it out of court, one who wrote total BS across the front of it. Then they took it to the New York Supreme Court, kicked it back down. There was a bench trial three months ago where she got up on the stand and was caught lying on the stand, and the judge dismissed the case against my wife and I, saying that there was no deception, that there was no real contract involved, that, there was, that she was informed of the losses. And by the way, when she said, I want to cash out, I said, if you cash out now, you will take the loss, and I can sell whatever it is out there for what the current value of it is. And she received a check for about $2,700, which she cashed out of her money. Was it a bad deal? Yes. But she actually made more than me because my wife and I had every dime that we had, and we were the single largest losers in this entire thing because we never took profits out of this. We put everything back into the accounts, so we lost more money than anybody else in this. And as the accounts were tanking and people wanted money back, but we couldn't pull money out of the accounts because it would collapse the margin, we pulled money out of our own pockets to give to people to then, and then took over their positions in the account, which was then when FXCM decided to close everything down and got us destroyed. 
So the question becomes, who exactly is the Security and Exchange Commission now representing? Because the law... Right, because they have no jurisdiction. Then who are they representing? Exactly. Yeah. So our conversation is, and this is, and I am not kidding. I, can, I, I will send you the documents to this. Number one, we said, well, you don't regulate foreign exchange trading. Therefore, what's your jurisdiction over foreign exchange trading? Number two, nothing happened in New York where you are, which means that if you really wanted to come after us, you would have to use the Los Angeles version of the SEC, of the SEC here. And so this is, and, but of the story, when they get up on the, on the steps of the New York courthouse, you know, evil psychic robs people of $6 million. Well, again, all that money was invested. You know, my wife and I now are actually facing bankruptcy, which we're probably filing at the beginning of next week. And, um, and now you've got the SEC with me all over the newspapers with nobody willing to support or even report my side of the story. And I tried. I mean, I, and again, I wasn't even served with the papers for, well, and they, they never even properly served us, actually, to tell you the truth. I mean, we were on a vacation, and a girl taking care of our cats found a bunch of crap thrown literally at our front door. So there was no imp- there was massively improper service to establish jurisdiction. They have no personal jurisdiction over us because I'm a sovereign citizen of the state of California, and I have paperwork filed, what's called an act of state, that says that I will not, and I've had this for like 20 years, that I'm not going to be dragged out of California to some foreign jurisdiction, which they know. At the same time, and this gets into a whole legal aspect of talking back and forth with the government, there is something known as the Administrative Procedures Act of 1946. This was created by the government to deal with the massive bureaucracy that Americans were terrified of that was in place after the war. That means that if you send administrative agencies of the government questions, they have to answer your questions. So we sent them an APA Act which said, what's your personal jurisdiction? What's your venue jurisdiction? What's this? What's that? Which they didn't answer. And so through a third party being a notary as the officer of the court, they are now completely in agreement with us, and we, in essence, on the private side, have won the case because they, they refused to respond, and they refused to fill out Freedom of Information Act papers. They refused. I mean, it's just it's nonsense, but I will tell you what, they're, what they claim. What they claim is we don't regulate foreign exchange. We don't regulate anything he did. We don't regulate the money. We don't regulate the process. But Mr. Morton claimed he could predict the stock market, and I said they took one line out of about a 15-page document that said, I have a really good track record with predicting the market, and I've predicted the highs and lows of the market, which I have. And that's what they said. They said, well, we don't believe him, and that's what we're basing our entire case on. Also, that we don't care about jurisdiction because we have worldwide, this is their quote out of their document, we have worldwide jurisdiction over anybody, anywhere. I want you to think huh. of the absurdity of that, of that statement, yes, number yes. one. Number two, when we asked about specifically how do you regulate foreign exchange and private contracts within individual, between individuals, they claimed in their paperwork, we regulate, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I will send it to you, quote, we regulate any, we regulate any financial transaction in which a gain can be expected. That's their claim. So this is a world government almost. Yes. And again, we put in, how, so we actually said, so if I go to a gypsy fortune teller, and she says, oh, well, you're going to get a good job and make a lot of money. She's now a financial advisor who can be sued by the Security Exchange Commission. And again, right, I exactly. might add, let me give you a couple of points here also. They do not want money from me. I'm not named as a relief defendant in the suit. They simply say that we want Sean Morton, even though the entire case is blah, 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 blah about me. They then say at the end that, well, our, the action that we want for, for relief is he is to be, quote, restrained, unquote. But they don't finish that sentence, Mel. 
Restrain from what? So we asked the court restrain what from what? That, yeah, what, what does that mean? Are you, are you supposed to not open your mouth? Are you supposed not to leave your house? Restrain of what? I guess not. Exactly. That's what we're asking the court. Okay, what? And again, the person they're going after for supposedly monetary relief is the Prophecy Research Institute because, because PRI was actually an investor that lost all its money actually in the account. And my poor wife, who actually asked, you know, who they know is in ill health and has some brain problems and some other things going on with her, and is just in, in very bad shape. And again, the, and, and she's the one named as the, quote, relief defendant, because she was the one that was basically taking funds on deposit, doing the transfers into FXCM, and then writing people checks. So there, and by the way, Daryl Weber, who we were told was the point of this entire investigation, this guy who was actually, you know, who was the one that was doing all the trading and doing all the accounting and doing everything else, he would basically call us at the end of the week and say, well, you know, here's how much you made, and here's the split between all the people, and yet da 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 So we could come up with the charts and the graphs to send out to people. He's not named in the suit. And he's the only one that walked away with dime one from this because he took his profits up front. And we were told by them, oh, well, the primary, you know, we want to, Daryl Weber is the focus of the investigation. So again, this case literally has no basis in law, has no basis in fact, and has no basis in reality. And I might point out that the New York office, the Southern New York office of the Security Exchange Commission, whose ballywick is Wall Street, has filed two cases, two financial cases, two, against basically representing the collapse of the financial structure of, the, of Western civilization as we know it, with losses of somewhere of about $4 trillion. Two cases, one against Goldman Sachs, against their hedge fund division and Henry Paulson, which, again, they do not regulate. And I will tell you what Goldman Sachs did. Goldman Sachs said, this is, this is a nuisance. This is absurd. They have no jurisdiction over what we did. But here's what Goldman Sachs did. On a Tuesday in the morning at 10 o'clock, Goldman Sachs wrote a check saying this is a nuisance case and we're just going to deal with it. They wrote a check for $550 million to the Security and Exchange Commission, and their stock went up 27 points which means because they'd solved this case, which means by 4 o'clock at the close of the bell, with that $550 million check, Goldman Sachs made $1.7 billion, billion. And the other case for the collapse of Western civilization as we know it is against me. Right. Right. Makes no sense. And, and, but... and uh, let me, one more thing before you, before you put off here. Five months ago, five months ago, we put in a motion to dismiss where we said to these judges, sir, please, they have not answered any of our charges. They have not answered the way this works. You hit the ball over to them. They can't hit the ball back. You win. They have not answered venue. They have not answered personal. They have not. I mean, there's 12 federal codes of civil procedure that they're in violation of that they have completely ignored. Please dismiss this case. That was five months ago. And we have not heard from the court hiding her hair in five months which means that they, one, don't want to rule on it because they don't want to make the Security Exchange, Exchange Commission look any stupider than they already are, and, and, and inefficient and incompetent, I might add. And number two, they do not want to set precedent because I stood up for my constitutional rights, filed all the proper paperwork to be basically a sovereign citizen and a person that is a creditor with power over the straw man, et cetera, et cetera, and they do not want precedent on this case. And I spoke to a federal judge on this who was familiar with this, who, who laughed his ass off. He was like, well, this is really funny. They're, I mean, this case is stupid. This is a federal judge who's sitting on the bench in, in, uh, you know, for like the whole northwestern region. And I said, well, what are they going to do? And he says, well, they obviously don't want to rule. He said, they can, they can just not rule on the case. They can string this out for seven years if they want to. So we now have to put in a motion. We have to demand that the court actually do something. 
that's the position that we've been put in. After all, so after right all now, this. right now it's in limbo. Yes, completely. Okay. Well, I uh, just want to make sure everybody understands that I'm not here to judge Sean David Morton, but a lot of people have asked me to to, to discuss this because we they wanted to know. Not one and number two, they haven't heard Sean be allowed in any radio show to discuss his side of the story. And I wanted to be fair and allow him to discuss this part of the story because you see a lot of information out there. And if you don't hear it from Sean, then it's just a one-sided story. Thank you, Mel. Thanks for letting me. You know, that's what's going on. It's, you know, you have to remember, too, that, you know, I'm a whistleblower and I've, and I've you know, everything. I mean, just the billions of dollars that I've, that I've cost the government out of Area 51 and when I was working for hard copy and all these other things. So I knew that they were going to be out to get me for a long time. Well, yeah. I, I believe in, in listening to every part of the story. Some people say, why are you having such and such on the show? And I just want to listen to every side. Well, Mel, you know, you know, you know what it's like to like never to, to be the guy that does the upfront thing and to never, I mean, I've, I, even the concept of stealing from anybody is just an anthema to me. I mean, What's the point? And it's just, you know, to have, to be, to be dragged out from the world press is like, you know, this liar and a thief and, you know, you stole all this money. And even if you look at the documents, it doesn't say we took the money. It doesn't even say that in the documents. Their whole thing is that their entire case is based on them saying, um, you have a taco stand and you said you had the world's greatest tacos. And we don't regulate tacos. We don't regulate taco stands. We're not even in the food business. But you said you had really good tacos and you, and you put money together to build the taco stand. And even though you had the tacos and the stand and you sold the tacos, we think that because you told people that you had really good tacos, that because that taco statement is fraudulent, that's why we're suing you. Right. That's their case. That said, we have a lot of information to discuss unrelated to what we just talked about, information that's critical to all of us worldwide. And Sean will be back with us. This is Mel Fabregas. I'm here with Sean David Morton, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
This is Paul Hellyer, and you are listening to Veritas. Veritas. 